Hi, I'm Russ Kamarna, an independent filmmaker and actor in New York, and in between the chances I get to do my creative projects, I love to sit down and talk with other artists to see how it is they do what they do, how they take art and use their craft to reveal truth to an audience. So in this series of conversations, you'll meet some people you may recognize, some people you won't recognize, but they're all independent artists and we'll get in-depth in a long-form conversation to see how it is they do what they do. Welcome to Art Craft Truth. This time on the Art Craft Truth podcast, screenwriter, comedian Devanshi Patel, from her days as a young stand-up comic among some of the great names of comedy in New York City, to moving to Hollywood to become a screenwriter for television shows like Blackish and God Friended Me, she pulls back the curtain in this no-holds-barred conversation on what it's like to be a working writer in Hollywood. Devanshi Patel. Okay, here she comes. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Nice to meet you. So you can hear me okay? Everything's good? Yes. All right. Well, you sound fantastic as well. I think we're good there. Let's... So hi. Uh, Thank you. Uh, how do I pronounce your name so I don't screw it up and butcher everything right off the bat? Oh, um, Devanshi. Devanshi. Like Vanshi. Vanshi. Okay. Yes. All right. Well, I'm Russ. How you doing? Yeah. And uh, and and you come from uh, Kate Van Devender, which is me, Russ. Which is awesome. How's your? Uh, let's see. Let me. I'm just gonna take a look at something real quick. Yours is. Uh, your video st is stuttering a little bit. So. Okay, I'll be back in like a minute. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, this should be better. Um, there's a lot of stuff on Wi-Fi in the south. So. Okay. Well, it's it, it's it sounds okay, um, and I think we're I think we should be all right. Let's do it. <laughs> cool. You are a you're you're pri you're primarily a writer. You're also an actor. I saw I saw that, but you're but you're a writer. <laughs> I'm primarily a writer. Yeah, I started out doing stand-up comedy, um, in New York. And uh, I wasn't actually doing, I was, I, I was in New York doing finance as well because um, I went to college in New York and um, I wanted to go to Tisch and my dad said no. And as the story goes with Indian families, you know, the parents always went out, always went out. Right. Um, so <laughs> I, I did finance during the day after I graduated. I, I worked in finance and, you know, hated it. And then I did stand up at night and um, I was doing like 20 to 25 shows a week wow. at one point. And it was, yeah, it was, it was a lot. And I didn't really realize it until much later. And I was like, Oh, my immune system is shot. <laughs> I see how this works. I got like no sleep. Right. Um, I was just shuttling back and forth between like my finance job and doing stand up. Mm. And but I was super lucky because I was in New York doing stand up at the time when Chappelle show was on and Patrice O'Neill was there and Bill Burr was there and Jim Norton. Like they were all, you know, I was at the Boston comedy club and the comedy salon was right around the corner. So like, as I, as I was coming up, you know, these guys would, would come and just like pop in and do like a quick 10 sure. and it would be incredible, you know? And so I was often the only, or one of the only females on, on, you know, that, that right. were, that was going to perform at any given time at night. Um, so it was like, you had to be this funny to, you know, even get on stage with any of those, cause you don't want to like get on stage 
um, and then like bomb in front of Patrice O'Neill. Like, that would <laughs> like, why would you do that? So I want to circle, I want to circle around a little bit. So, um, so, yeah, okay. so you, so you went to school, where'd you go to school first in New York? Where'd you go to school? For oh yeah, I went to school at um, NYU. Okay. For, um, for finance. And I applied, yeah. And I, and I, I ended up doing finance. I wholly intended to like, just sneak my switch over to Tish and study film and everything, but apparently whoever's paying tuition gets <laughs> right. gets to know what's, what's going on. So I couldn't quite do that. Right. Um, but I was constantly around like film and theater kids. Like I was always around, you know, people who were acting and writing and I so envied them. And so like when I, I actually started doing stand-up when I was in college, cause you know, I would just, I think my freshman year actually, I you know, me and my friends were walking around, we saw the comedy seller and my friends were like, you should do that, like, do, you know, do the thing you want to do. And so I was like, all right. So I like wrote up five minutes and I did the bringer show. Um, and I brought all my friends and, and, you know, did my first five minutes at the cellar of all places. Wow. Um, I mean, it was a bringer show, so it's not like, you know, it's still, but you know, that yeah no it was it was still amazing it was still like you're you, you have like it be, because it's new york it's like you have to take this seriously you know what i mean like it's not like you get, getting your friends together to do a bringer show in like you know indiana or like kansas or something or you know ohio and not that you don't take yourself seriously there but i think that when you want to do something like as a profession, as a career, New York and LA, there's just so they're 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 so much more intense. Right. In okay. So let me let me, let me st stop you there, just for the folks out there. What, explain what the Bringer Show is. What what that means. What the what the oh, terminolo yeah. terminology means. All the fun terminology of stand up, <laughs> um, bombing and killing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so a bringer show is where you have to, like, the person performing has to bring, it's usually a lot of people, like 10 people to a show just to be able to perform for like five minutes, which means that those 10 people have to pay a cover charge and have to pay for drinks and, you know, what, what have you. Um, the guarantee, so basically it's, it's just the, like, it's the guarantee that if you, yeah, if you suck, at least they're going to make money on some drinks and seats. That's, yeah. that's what the idea is. It's if is generous. I think when you suck, when you suck, right. they, they at least get their money, you know? Um, but, you know, it's it's a lot of paying your dues. Like, I barked for, like, four years or something. Like barking is passing out flyers, you know, for, for shows. So you either bring people or you bark, you know? Um, and everybody starts out this way. Almost everybody starts out like this. So I was doing, you know... I, I was barking in, in New York and just to like pass out flyers on the street and for almost everybody, especially New Yorkers, just be like, you know, fuck off, <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to go get, you know, just try, trying to go to a bar. I'm just trying to, I'm not trying to see your dumb comedy show. I'm sure I was um, one of the people who just passed up on that card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, or or like like some people did they just like took the flyer and then they threw it away in my face like thanks dude <laughs> but hey you know what that's the good thing about new york is you know right away where you stand like you get immediate results yeah you threw it right in the garbage so you knew there was no guessing about it, it just... yeah <laughs> that guy 
guy's not coming. <laughs> that guy's not coming to my show. Right. So let me um, let me circle around a little bit um, because stand-up comedy is. Uh, I mean, it's the it's the brave heart of of uh, entertainment. I mean, you're out. That, that is the the most courageous, most amazing thing I think that most performers can do, and it takes just a very special kind of person, who special. I'm, I put in quotes, who wants to do that and can do it. Yeah, no, I know. So so let's go back a little bit. When you were a kid and you were thinking of what you want to be, were you always? Did you always want to be in entertainment? Did you want to be, did you think you were funny or did you want to be an actress? What was the thing? We'll get to where you went, but what started you off as a kid? Um, when I was a kid, I did love writing and I loved, um, I, I always wanted to be a writer director. Like that is one thing I, I always wanted to do. And, um, and I think somewhere in there, I also wanted to perform and I wasn't, I, I didn't have enough confidence to like put myself out there as a performer first. So I started writing a little bit more. And as far as comedy, I just, I mean, comedy was very much my defense mechanism as it is for like everyone who gets into it. But I think because I felt like I didn't really fit into school because I, you know, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh and it's, it, it, it's, it's getting like, you know, Racially, it wasn't like best environment. I always got made fun of for being Indian, like just like dumb, like Simpsons jokes and curry things and 7-Eleven jokes and all that shit. Um, and then at home, I was very much the odd one out too, because um, I was like more sensitive than everyone else. And, you know, I was, I just didn't quite fit in everywhere I went. Right. So like the only way that I really got to get people kind of on my side was through humor and like if I was like if I was funny then people would either pay attention to me which is what I wanted or at least not make fun of me right. <laughs> you know well here's, a, get qu one here's, of them here's a question for you as well I mean uh the other aspect is being a funny female how was that as a, I mean how did that play as into this as a kid as well well I mean you're not really even even like as an American like you're not really supposed to be super funny you know um as females you know you're you're there's still like these uh, um preconceived notions of what women are supposed to be like and funny isn't usually one of them it, like I, I think you're supposed to be like get have a sense of humor right. but especially like as an indian person um you're supposed to be a little bit more feminine and not like super outspoken and brash. And I would curse and all of that, you know, like I would always get in trouble. And I, I mean, I would just go for the inappropriate joke every time because I wanted to get a reaction. I wanted, I thought it would like relax my mom and dad. And instead it just made them like ground me or, you know, whatever. Um, but I, I did always like, I, I thought I was funny because I could make people laugh because I, I got the reactions and like it was like my whole childhood was just like a it was like being on stage it was just like with the hardest freaking audience because this audience did not want to laugh at you right, you know it was right. like a real true Staten Island um <laughs> audience there. you know they're like <laughs> it's like show me. oh in make me laugh right. you know right so as a, so as a kid growing up especially with sort of the the cultural part of your family and and sort of how that orients towards a certain kind of success you know 
defense mechanism being comedy. Uh, when does it, is it always sort of like this, this uh, encoded, like coded, uh, cloaked thing that you kept? Or at some point do you come out and perform? At some point do you kind of say, this is what I'm going to do? Or how does it, how does it, how do you balance it? I mean, once you got into school, you were studying finance and then you were doing, and then you were doing finance in the day and going to comedy, you, you, you found a way to split that life. But as you're growing up, how did you, how did you find, how'd you find the outlet for those things? Um, I wrote a lot. I did write a lot. Um, like I would write plays, I would write poems, I would write like, you know, um, I would write short stories. I would, you know, I mean, Jim Carrey, I love Jim Carrey and Chris Farley. You know, they were my heroes growing up up like I love the Monty Python also you know just all of that really like really absurdist but really smart comedy I think watching a lot of that also helped too because it was even even watching it was kind of a catharsis and and an education in and of itself of like oh this is what makes people laugh and you're kind of you know scientifically getting into it that way right so um it was it was it was always like a test of like how how to make the bullies laugh at school and the and and the parents laugh at home and it was always like you can't like you those those jokes don't overlap let me tell you no, <laughs> you, no. you can't make the same no. and to your parents yeah the the fucking dick jokes or whatever don't play uh, <laughs> don't play real well at the uh, at the wedding you know it's not gonna work <laughs> no <laughs> no exactly all right, all right so so through as you're growing up do you think are you where's the dream does it always stay there you think you're eventually going to get to do the thing you want to do or are you feeling like hey i'm gonna looks like i'm going to finance looks like i'm going to business what's you know where does the dream finally come out for you or do you ever give up on it or do you ever does you ever encourage yourself yeah well um i you know, it's funny. At the same time that I wanted to be a writer or director, I also wanted to be a lawyer. But I think I only wanted to be a lawyer because I saw lawyers on TV and in movies and they were like, it was so cool to like be able to, you know, be all badass in the courtroom. And I, I think at some point I realized um, when I was in high school and college that I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I wanted to write I wanted to be a TV lawyer. <laughs> like I wanted to be, you know, someone who could stretch my own stuff and say what I wanted to say. Like I wanted to be on a David E. Kelly show, you know. Um, but I, there were definitely moments, but not until, not until much later when I was really into doing like stand up and even in my career, that I was like, wait, what? is there, is there a different way out? Like, should I, should I have done a, a different thing? You know? Cause I mean, I never liked finance. So I never, I, for, from day one, when I started working in finance, I was saving to quit because I was like, this is just a job. This is just a paycheck. And I'm going to, you know, do my own thing eventually. Um, when I've like saved enough money and I actually did do that. I actually like quit my job and then I moved to LA and with like a suitcase and then couch surfed for a while. What did, uh, what, um, what did the family but, think we were going to do? Oh, I mean, they were not, my, my, my mom and dad were not happy also because I was like, I announced it like a week before I left. So I was like, and I think I kind of made, I made a kind of impulsive choice. Um, but I had applied to the Fox writers workshop and I didn't know if I was going to get in or not. 
but I just left anyway because I was like, I there's nothing for me in New York right now. Like I don't have a job here. I was still doing stand up a little bit, but I really loved the idea of like creating worlds and characters mm. and building on them. And that's a whole different animal than doing stand up. It's just a whole different outlet for creativity. Right. Um, and uh, I, when I uh, told my parents, they were, I think they were kind of in denial about it for a long time. <laughs> And then my dad would call me when I moved to LA. She would, he would call me like every two weeks. He would be like, so you're moving back in six months, right? You're moving back in six months. And then like six months later, I'm like, dad, I'm not moving back. Like, I don't know. There's nothing. I'm not, I'm not working at the family business. I'm not like, I'm not going back to finance. You know, there's just, I, this is it. You know, this is, wow. there, there's, there's nothing else here. Yeah. Before we get you to LA, let's circle back to that, that moment when, when you're walking past the comedy cellar and it's time to think about really doing this again for, for someone like me, who's just a, an, an actor and, and I come from the theater and, and film world and stuff, but stand up comedy is just to me is just the bravest thing in the world. What was it? Did you have to think about it? Was it just, let me just dive in. Did you have, I mean, did you have five minutes? Did you have a minute? How much material did you have? What were you doing? What was the kind like, what was that first moment walking on that stage with that material? Oh, I mean, it was material that, so I had gone to like me, me and my friends were just looking for a bar that would um, not cart us probably. <laughs> um, and um, there was some guy um, who was like, Hey, come to the show tonight. And we were like, Oh, we don't want to come to the show, but how does she get on the show? <laughs> like, how can she get a spot on one of the shows? Because I, because I was like, I, like I want to do this, so I asked this guy, and I was like, how how can I, you know, how can I get some stage time? And then um, he he told me I would ha I would have to do a bringer, and then like I think maybe a month or two later, um, I I was at the club, but in between that, in that one to two months. I was writing material and then I would test it out on my friends and like my, my roommates. And there was one thing that my dorm had, they had like a talent show night and I did, I did my routine there and, um, and I got enough like good feedback. Like I got enough good, like laughs and stuff that I was like, okay, I think I'm ready with this thing. Like it was like, I had had it memorized verbatim and it was like five minutes, you know, like I didn't want to, you know, do any less than that so um yeah it was I, I think it was pretty dark too I think it was like really <laughs> still, like really dark um I remember I've seen a few horrified looks in the room but for the most part of was that fun <laughs> was it uh was you know like you know uh, it was dark was it blue material was it where you, where you could just like uh, say anything you wanted kind of thing what was your what was your stuff were you doing bits were you doing stories we doing straight jokes. We Rodney doing punchlines. Like, what's what's your style? Would you? Oh, yeah. Um, it wasn't storytelling actually, and not at that point. Um, I that's an elevation to to get to when you're can actually tell a story on stage and you know, um, make it funny at at every beat. But mine was just like probably jokes that were non sequiturs. You know, something. I feel like I had something about like. Um, I, I want like the Rolling Stones or something like that. Just like random, like it would be like the Rolling Stones and then something about the subway and then something about, you know, what it was just like the most random, you know, conglomeration of jokes that 
I could just, um, that I could just like piece together to find it. Just a, a stream of consciousness that you, you put together into a, into a, into a routine, into a bit, into a bunch of bits. Um, so yeah, but I, I, I did own it. Yeah. So you did this for how long, how long were you doing stand up? And it's the comedy cellar in New York with, I mean, was Dangerfield still around? Like what were the, what were the places you were hitting in that stretch? Um, well, when I, I didn't really start doing it like full time, which is like full time at night and really like started doing like, at first I was doing all the open mics. Mm -hmm. And so people would have an open mic at like the back of any bar, you know, it was just a way to make money because you have to pay five bucks to get five minutes of stage time. So for a few years after college, I was just doing open mics and they were mostly in the village because, um, you know, there's just so many bars in the village and um, you can only get so many New Yorkers into yours, I guess. Um, but it would also be a lot, like a Tuesday night at like seven at, at night, you know, so it's not like you're going to get a whole bunch of people there. Um, but like the Village of Lantern uh, was one of them. Boston Comedy Club, I think, had open mics. Um, most of them were just like random bars but then when I started getting actual stage time I was often at like like when I you know graduated um I was often at the Boston Comedy Club a lot I was at a place called um Haas I was at um the 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 comic strip um the Laugh Factory um you know, just kind of like wherever I could get a spot, so, just making my way so around. So what's the war story uh, that where you either, you follow, you're following somebody. Like what's the, what's the story, the war, the comedy war story where you're like, oh, I'm going on after this. <laughs> you know, somebody just killed it. Somebody oh. just killed that room and you're like, all right. Yeah. Well, let's see. I mean, this one time, um, I, so when Chappelle show was on Chappelle would come down to Boston comedy club. Cause that was like the club that he got, you know, that, that, that he was always at when he started in, in New York. And, um, so when he would come down, like we would usually be able to get, we were lucky, lucky if we got like 20 people in that club. When we said Chappelle was going to be down, it was a packed night every time, you know, it would be like a Tuesday at like 11 at night and we'd still get a packed crowd. Um, and then if you were supposed to go on, well, too bad. You're going on after, after Chappelle and Neil Brennan and everyone go, right? So like, if we had a crowd then still left after Chappelle left and, and his whole, you know, team, um, there'd be like 20 people left and I, how the fuck do you follow Chappelle? Like, I don't know any comic. I don't know any comic that would want to follow. Like, how, who, would, who would do that to themselves? Right. I'm not a masochist. I mean, I am because obviously I, you know, go up on stage. But, like, why would you do that to yourself? Um, so I think those were the hardest. I think that the ones that were really hard were the ones when I knew that there were big comics in the back just watching, just waiting for their time. Right. And I was like, you're not doing stand-up to just an audience. You're doing it to freaking like Judah Friedlander and, you know, Bill Burr and Jim Norton are back there waiting for their, you know, 10 minutes. So you better you know, fucking bring it. And I think sometimes I just stick myself out. What's interesting is I had uh, Jackie Martling on this podcast a while and he was talking about um, 
uh, comedians and one of the things they love the most is you know they wait for the other comedian to bomb because that's their that's that's what they find the funniest so they'd be sitting in the back so you you'd hear the silence you know you'd hear the comedian do their bit then total silence then three seconds later off in the distance you'd hear all the comics in the back laugh because they were waiting to see you know who's gonna who's gonna tank who's who's (laughs) gonna crash you know yeah Yeah, it's a it's an amazing art form and i'm curious do you carry when when you we're gonna now get you out to to LA and your screenwriting career and stuff, but do you carry, first of all, do you miss it? Do you get to do any of that ever again? Did you ever, have you ever gone back to stand up at all? Do you get up and perform at all? Um, I, you know what, when I moved to LA, I felt like I had to start all over again. Hmm. And, um, and I was like, I, I mean, I, I, it seemed like there was either you really get into writing and become a much better writer or you do stand up and i i picked writing because i mean that's kind of what i came out to la for if i wanted to keep doing stand up i should have stayed in new york because that's where you really cut your teeth right you know um so i did a little bit like i did a few spots in la but at the time that i moved to la there weren't many clubs like if if you could get four spots a week you were lucky and i was like how do you work out material right. in four spots a week? Like, I'm not going to constantly be doing open mics to work out material. That's not, that's a horrible, you know, venue to work out new material. Um, and that's the thing so, about that art form, right? Is you have to, that's the thing about that art form is you have to, you have to have an audience. You have to constantly work it. Otherwise you can't do it in your room. You know, you need a, you need those people. Right. Yeah. And preferably not other stand-up comics that are just like, working on their own stuff while you're doing your five minutes right you know what i mean so um so you go out to la uh, to to be a screenwriter to be a to write for the screen to write for movies to write for television what what is your plan and what is your um you said you got into a fox uh a workshop type thing what was the like what was the blueprint when you did you just go out i don't know what i'm going to do or did you have an idea of where you were headed well um I, when I moved to LA, I literally had nothing. I, I had no, I had no idea what I was going to do. I was um, just going to try to get like an assistant job or I was going to, you know, uh, get, you know, some kind of like education writing at USC or UCLA or something like that. I, I wasn't, I honestly didn't have a plan at all. Mm. Um, and then, and I wasn't really sure about what I had done until I got into a, uh, I, I got into two writing workshops. One was the NAMIC writing workshop. And I felt like that was, it was like a two day workshop. It was a much smaller than one than the, the network ones, but it was like, okay, you're on the right track. Like you can write, you just need to get much better at it, you know? And I was, I was connected with a few executives um, through friends who were nice enough to read the pile of garbage that I had written and called a script and give me notes on it. And even they were like, you're, I mean, you're good. You just need to like learn structure and you need to learn blah, blah, blah. And those were the things that I could learn. So I was like, okay, I can do this. And then when I got into the Fox Writers Workshop, like, within a year of moving to LA, I was like, okay, now this is really a sign. Like they really did, you know, I got um, a lot of compliments on uh, my jokes and the script. And actually when I walked in the room for the Fox Writers Workshop, 
and they they were interviewing me before I was girl because the way that you write jokes, you write such hard jokes. We thought you were a guy, and I was like, I know that's a compliment, but also fuck you because women can write jokes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So they um, so they thought they, they thought just based on the material, they thought they were dealing with a man, and you come in and yeah. yeah. Yes, which I was like, I thank you for for that compliment. It's also backhanded. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so when I got into the Fox Writers Workshop, I was like, okay, so this is real. This is real encouragement. Like mom and dad were wrong, and like everyone you know who told me to go back home was was wrong, because there's something here. Right. You know, like I can actually, I can write. I just probably need to get better. You know, so it's um, so like a lot of artists that you know that I've gotten to talk to so far, that positive that that initial positive reinforcement, that first bit of encouragement that says, "Okay, I'm not nuts. I, I can do this job." That was it was there that you found that 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 workshop was good. It, it's much better now, I think. Um, but it was a good process of being like this is where you need to get better at storytelling and this is what you're good at and consistently like people always like the characters in the world that our that I was building um but I always needed to get better at like the structure because I you know as as a comedy writer you get attached to jokes and you're just like but the script revolves around this one joke that you can't come up because it's so funny you know and obviously that's the first thing that you cut because it has no purpose there um but i yeah so i uh it was it was like it it was like a victory kind of it was like vindication you know um of okay maybe i can actually do this thing but i gotta tell you i mean throughout the whole thing i there was never a point where i didn't think i shouldn't be i i I, I, where I thought I shouldn't be doing this. Right. You know what I mean? Like there was never a point where I was like, no, this, this might not be for me. Whenever I doubted myself, it was always like, I want money. I don't like being broke. You know, um, there's safety and security and going to finance or getting my MBA or, you know, it was always doubting like my lifestyle, but not what I was doing. Well, that's, that's really, uh, that's really impressive because again, it's, it's something that's in you. It takes a lot of uh, courage to, to get into this line of business that we do. And, uh, and for you to, to just never have that, that feeling of, am I right or am I wrong? That you know you're on the right track. So just for a craft, from a craft standpoint, when you're writing um, in the beginning, were you writing for television? Was it, was it movie writing? Like what was, what was the screenwriting you were doing? What kind of stuff were you working on? When you talk about structure. Um, structure? I was always, good point. Yeah, I was always writing for television at first. Okay. Um, I had written like this insane screenplay on like four hours of sleep over a week in college. Um, <laughs> um, and again, you know, I just got compliments on like the jokes and the characters in the world. Um, but for television, you know, there's just, there's a, there's a certain structure. And back then, uh, like Apple TV wasn't a thing and Hulu wasn't a thing. So like, you know, Atlanta wasn't a thing and Louie wasn't a thing and all of those TV shows that play with amorphous structure. And it was just like, you can't just tell like this 
linear kind of story that, I mean, it would have twists and turns, but like, why, why is there a twist on like the second page and then another one on like page 15? Like, this is a completely bananas, you know, <laughs> just like, you need, um, it, I, I just needed to like, kind of like, make it more cohesive as a story and were not they, just like were they teaching you, were you learning sort of the um you know the save the cat you know uh beat uh beat sheet kind of structure like how, what was the what was the thrust of how they were telling you how to do things no that that's a good point so in the fox workshop there's this thing called writer's boot camp at least there was a thing back then i think it was based in santa monica and um they they had their own guidelines of like how story structure would go and they had their own like set of turning to um and that kind of helped but I, I I didn't really have like a formal education in writing I took a couple classes at UCLA but I read a lot of books and I wrote a lot of scripts too and I wrote a lot of spec scripts and I think that like really studying structure um ought that like from television, like not just like theoretical, really helped me and kind of honed it in. You know, you need a you need a thing here. You need what well, what's the midpoint? All of that stuff. Right. It's still not easy. I'm not saying like I can robotically just be like, and the midpoint is, you know. Um, but it's still like I can tell a lot better now. You know, when there's something missing and Act Two is too long, and you know, blah blah blah, all that stuff. So do you do you um, give yourself sort of a template? Or do you, where you, or is it just sort of intuitive now where you know by page 23, this is, or, or do you lay out sort of a blueprint where you can hit these buoys? I got to write up to this point where I can, how do you lay out the page and lay out the story when you start writing? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I almost always outline. There are, uh, there are rare times when I don't outline anymore. Um, and it, it always comes to bite me in the ass because then I have to like go back and outline. Um, but I generally actually draw up an outline and then I'll send that to some friends and be like, okay, what do you think of this? And, you know, I always get feedback and I learned early on that the one thing that's worth its weight in gold in this town in whatever you're trying to do creatively is getting feedback. It's getting good feedback, not just any feedback. Um, like, in, you know, feedback that is informative and insightful and can really, like, propel you to make your your material, whatever you're working on, better. Um, and so I, you know, when I was starting out, I didn't really know that many people. But when I got into these workshops, I there were, like, another cadre of, you know, friends who were also good, you know, good-ish writers who were up-and-coming people. So we would start exchanging um, scripts. And I think that also helped me, like reading other people's scripts also helped me with uh, structure too, because then I was like, oh, I'm making that same mistake. I'm making that same mistake that she's doing. Right. You know? And I would think and, I would think that your uh, stand-up comedy uh, background helps you check your ego at the door, you know, when you have to get that feedback. And so you can kind of let go of the of the stuff and just make it better, right? You would think. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe not. it's still hard. You know, like okay, so like when you bomb on stage, you you want to just get hit by a truck. You just want to walk out the door and have like a semi just hit you, and then you're done. You're done with life. Um, but 
it's still it's still like sucks to get feedback because one your material is personal to you no matter what you're writing and two you have to go back even though you know there's something wrong even though you know that you're gonna have to do more work on it you're still like god damn i'm gonna have to do more work on this thing you know it's like you just finished a whole draft of an outline or a script and you're like oh um so and there's almost always more notes than you think there are going to be right, right. <laughs> so um so it's I think once I get over, at least personally, like once I get over that initial defensive writer thing of like, oh, damn it, you know, are you right? And then I'll be like, yeah, okay, you're right. Yeah, you know. And then once I start like working on the script or working on the outline, I'll like be like, oh, this is actually, thank you for the suggestion. It's making it better. Right. <laughs> you know? Well, I'll tell you, we're going to get into, uh, we're going to move forward in your career. So we're going to get really get into people giving you notes because as you get into your career, that's all it is, is people who probably shouldn't be giving notes or giving notes and on notes on top of notes. So we'll talk about that, but let's get you, what's that first gig that you get? Do you get like a, like a staff writer gig or something? Like what's the first paying kind of thing where you're like, okay, I'm in LA and I'm, I sold something or I'm on a staff or I'm in it. I'm working. I'm here. I'm doing it. What is that thing for you? Yeah, that was um, when I I got my first staff writer job on a show called Ground Floor, which was a multicam on TBS. And um, that's when I was like, like, holy shit, I broke into Hollywood. This happened. I actually did it. I did a thing. Um, And it was it was huge. It was like momentous when I got that job, because I don't think I think even the people in my family who were kind of supporting me were thought that that she'll just she'll quit at some point and realize you know and then when that happened I think it was like whoa she actually did it you know like that actually happened um so it was it was a big deal and I I kind of wish that I'd had more exposure to a room before getting into my first staff job because especially as somebody coming from the stand-up comedy um environment in new york where everything is i mean like especially if you're a girl if you're if you're a woman and you're hanging out with the guys doing stand-up like they're going you know they're gonna say like you have to be able to hold your own like they're gonna make a sexual harass like you don't do there's no hr they're gonna be sexually harassing <laughs> they're gonna be they're 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 gonna be assholes and you can't you have to be an asshole back you just do kind of the job you know um <laughs> really is and 100% is so I thought in my mind that kind of like a common room would be be like a bunch of people who used to do stand-up or what have you and they were just like sitting around a table and being funny and I was like oh that's not like that at all it's like people who have you know families at home and um, don't always say like, and are and we're shocked when I would make blue jokes because I think partly I'm I'm pretty short, like I'm like five feet one. I'm gonna go with the one, yeah, and um, <laughs> and you know I, <laughs> and I think that you don't expect like a lot of swearing and whatnot to come out of my mouth when you first meet me, and then when it does happen. Like there's a shift, there's like a perceptible shift that I see in women and men differently. Right. Um, but my room was mostly men. 
and I mean, it was fine. It was just, it was a very specific environment. And I think the one thing I did not know, and I think that really dominates your life and, and how you work professionally and personally in LA is the politics of a room. Like that should be a course that is taught. That, that should be, that's almost sometimes to some showrunners, it's more important than your ability to write, right. which is what like, Oh, why, why would you be a good writer? Well, let's, yeah. let's talk about that. First of all, before we even talk about that, I'm a little disappointed because yeah. I think we're, we're like 20 minutes in or 40 minutes in and I've gotten maybe one fuck out of you. So you're telling me that <laughs> you're five God, and all, all I'm going to get is just, just great, you know, just curses at me and I haven't gotten one shit fuck piss, you know. <laughs> George Carlin would be disappointed because the list hasn't. So you'll have to catch up in the second half of this. But two, just yeah, just rattle them off at some point. Um, but two, uh, was it? Do you think it was just that specific show that that's that that was the vibe of that room? Ha, you know, have rooms changed over the course, or like, why do you think? What do you think that was about? Oh no, it was most certainly not that specific room. Okay, every single room has its own politics, has its own culture. And it's largely set by the showrunner. I mean, the showrunner is the CEO of that mini corporation and they set the tone for how that company is run. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, you know, there's been a lot of articles and a lot of people talking about like dysfunctional showrunners and how they're not good managers and this and that. And a lot of it is true. And I, I mean, a lot of it is just like ego. It's just you know, it's, it's, it's a free for all. And again, there's no HR. I mean, okay. Yeah. There's an HR, but who's going to go to freaking like Warner brothers or CBS or ABC HR and being like, you know, my showrunner. It's like, Oh, you don't want a job. You never work want to work in this industry. Okay. Go to HR, you know? Um, but also it's like, Oh, then that just means that you can't hang, especially in the comedy room. You know, it's like, you don't want to be that girl who, if you remember, the friends lawsuit. I remember that from when I was a, like a kid and she, she was the writer's assistant who sued friends who sued like the whole show somehow or something like that because they were making really crude and lewd comments in the writer's room. And she sued them for some kind of harassment. And it was such a huge, it was, it was such a huge thing. And no, Nobody wanted to be that girl, especially as a girl. Like you didn't want to be that person, you know? So there's so much more pressure on you to, um, to be able to throw it back, like throw it, you, you know, well, like if. Let me stop you there. Makes, let like, me stop you there. Cause this is, yeah. this is an interesting tangent we can go off on. I want to, I want to get back to the craft of, of um, what you actually do the, in the room, the actual nuts and bolts of how you guys are tossing ideas around. Cause I think that's kind of the thrust of the show, but what you said there is interesting um that there's this you know this tough armor you have to have and you have to be able to throw it back um do you think the environment the way it is now has changed that in any way sort of the the me too basic that whole has has thing have things shifted do you still feel like you gotta duke it out in there or like is it is that an anachronistic way to look at it how is it now i think that well now it's it's much more different i mean in the sense that like you know you're not i'm not gonna say you're not gonna get harassed or anything but it's you're you know that eyes are on you 
you know, and so you're going to do, you're, you're, you're not going to just let yourself be the worst version of yourself in the room or whatever you want. Like, you're not going to let yourself be whatever, because you're, I think that the Me Too movement has shed a light on, um, the awareness that you are still in a professional environment. And I also think that the increased diversities in rooms have put people on a less comfortable in in a less comfortable seat but in a good way in the sense that like if you're just hanging with your friends and all your friends happen to look like you you're just kind of shooting the shit in the room and you don't really care about people's feelings because if you can't fucking you know it, like if if we're gonna break your balls, well, what are you gonna go fucking cry in the bathroom? You know what I mean? Right. Um, I think I had like five fucks in there. I, so I was kind of welcome. You're, thank you. Um, <laughs> um, but you know, now I think that if you're in a group of people that don't look like you, um, you're you're a lot more aware of how you think and how you articulate your ideas. And how that how that affects the other people in your room? Because to be honest, look, the reason that there are more diverse people in a room, and I hate to use that word, but it just is what it is, is because there are more people of color in America, right. and the art industry is a business. It is a money machine, and those people have disposable income, and they want you know, brown, black, Asians, like they want all of those people to watch television, watch the ads and go buy stuff. Right. You know what I mean? And that's part of the reason, that's part of, that's a big part of the reason why there's more um, diversity in rooms. Um, so you, you kind of have to be aware of the environment that you're, that you're in and the message that you're sending out because you don't want to offend a bunch of Asian people or, you know, Latinx audience people because you didn't have a Latinx person or an Asian person in your room and you made that joke and now it's all over Twitter. You know what I mean? Well, also, so, also um, I would, you, I think, I said, yeah. Also, I would say that, because uh, I've heard this too, is uh, that's the the sort of the negative side of it where you you, you, you don't want to do something that alienates an audience, but also you want, like, you want that diver you want the female, the male, because if it's all one thing, they're not getting like I like the guys don't get the girls' jokes. So you need the other girls in there so that it's like you're not getting why that why that joke is funny, but there's, you know, fifty percent of the people out there are women. They they're gonna laugh at this. Trust us, we know. You know, so I think it's the same with culture and everything else. You want somebody to go, that's funny. Here's why it's funny, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, honestly, like I, I believe personally on a fundamental level, and this is part of the reason I love writing is, is that when you have different points of view, they only make and elevate, like they, they, they only make your material better. They only elevate it because you aren't just looking at something in a one dimensional way. You have better jokes because of it. You know, you have, um, you you have contradictory you know points of view that that add more authenticity and layers right. to your your show or your movie or what have you right so. all right so so that, so let's get into the you know 
the 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 routine of it you know what is what is that writer's room like what's the day like you know how do you guys let's just take a comedy room for example uh how do you do it like you're sitting around everybody's tossing ideas do you have uh an idea of what the show has to be for that week and you know the story and it's let's write it or what what is the how do you do it okay so in 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 a comedy writer's room um it, it varies from room to room, but for the most part, you're all in the same room and you're trying to come up with a good story and for, for an episode, right? And then um, once you kind of land on an idea, you build off of that, It'll, you know. Um, for example, in, in the Blackish room, when we were trying to come up with ideas, I remember uh, we would start out with just like stories, like personal stories. Um, I remember one of the execs was like, one of the EPs, I mean, was like, oh, you know what? I, 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 uh, just away in our dishwasher last night. And I was so proud of myself because it was so awesome. And my wife was so pissed at me because she's like, I do this every day, you know, and I don't get any credit. And we kind of built, we built a whole story on that. That was, you know, um, cause a lot of the other writers were like, oh yeah, that happens to me a lot. My, my, my husband thinks he's like amazing when he does dishes once, you know? Um, so then you kind of start building a story off of that. And then you're like, okay, well we have an idea. We have a bigger idea, but then how does it relate to the show and what the show is about and what we're trying to say through the show? And you know, how, how does it, relate to what this family is going through within the context of um, a black family that is moving up socioeconomically, but feels like they're also being disconnected from the roots, you know? Right. Um, so then we kind of build around that. And a lot of that was taken from, you know, in, in this case, it was from the creator's um, own life story. So, you know, he, he might have an opinion on that. And then we would kind of go around the room. And if you had an opinion on like how to, how to make the story like a little bit more fleshed out, you know, you do that. And then, and then we would start putting the beats on the board. And um, depending on if we're writing a couple of episodes and we just saw on ground floor too, that I think every comedy writer um, room does this, you know, you break up into rooms because you're working on, a lot of scripts and so you have like this room that's going to go off and do that and then this room that's going to stay and work on like the the draft of the last episode or what have you but you know generally then you once once that story is beaded out then you start making you know um a much you the the writer of the episode will go and turn that into an outline and before they go and turn into an outline we generally um have like a few hours or maybe a whole day where like all the writers are in one room and we're just kind of like joking about every beat so that the writer has enough jokes and like funny material to put in the outline. Um, and then you go off with the outline. The outline is generally approved or not approved by the showrunner. Um, and, you know, and then obviously the process of like the producers, the studio, the, right. the, yeah. the network. All the notes start coming yeah. in, you know, from, from, from yeah, on high. Exactly. So let me, let me go back a little bit because this is interesting to me um, because uh, my whole thing is uh, uh, especially directing and stuff. I, I'm always concerned with the story. What, what is it about? What are you trying to say? And then the plot, I mean, that's great. 
I, I, I don't like to get all caught up too much in plot. Um, I, I always want to make sure that we're not steering off the story. So if I understand you correctly, you got what the show is about. You know what you guys are writing about, and it comes from the creator of the show and the idea of what the story is about this. And then you take out of your orbit in your life plot things, plot points that kind of come in, and you build kind of plots for each show around this and, and joke on it. Um, and then you beat it out. Now, so for folks who don't know what that is, explain what beating it out is. What is laying out the beats before you get to the outline? What, is, what does that mean? Because for some people, beating it out might mean something else. So I need you to explain this to us. Well, first, <laughs> first unzip your pants, and then, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Um, so beating, beating out a story is, is like making into a, a beat sheet is just the, um, the, the, basically the plot points, the, the turning points of, of that story. Right. And it's, it's not quite an outline because an outline is much more fleshed out. It has a lot more detail of the story and it usually goes scene by scene. The beat sheet is just something for the story area. Now, a story area is also something that most shows have to turn into the producers in the in the studio and the network, and they all have to get that approved too. And the story the story area is usually just like it depends, but it's usually like a three to five page document in prose, you know, not not bullet pointed, but in prose of like what how how the story goes, right. and um, and then again, you know, and and that is taken from the 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 beaded out plot points on the board and then you take the story area and then you know after that get, goes through all the round of notes you turn that into the outline so this is a tremendous amount of structural work creative work uh um from understanding what the story is you're telling to beating out the the plot the plot points to creating an outline to creating a structure at every single level of those it has to be approved all the way up to the studio and the and the network and whoever else is doing it um, explain folks in that process how long you have to get that done what is how long do you get to work on each one of these that's a good question because it it depends between um broadcast and cable i think that broadcast has more tighter deadlines than than cable mo mostly because you're writing more scripts on broadcast but um generally you get about i, I, I want to say like five ish days maybe including a weekend to do the outline and then usually get about a week if not for for drama sometimes you might get two but you get about a week to do to, to write the script Wow. Um, but again, like in between all of that, like, uh, I think I had to do a story area in, in a few days and, you know, when you're doing the, the story area and usually the outline, you're still going to work. Usually when you're off on script, you can do that from home or in your office, but like you're not in the room at all. At the, at the end of the process, then you have to hand it off to, um, to actors who you hope are going to land the material and on network and on, on a lot of these shows, a different director every time. So there's no continuity in that as a writer, how does that affect how you're thinking about what you're doing? Well, you know, it, it's funny because I guess after like the first 
few episodes at least, you get to see how the actors land their lines and especially their jokes. So you start writing to that. Like, you're like, oh, I don't know if they're going to be able to do a hard joke, but they can do this kind of joke. Uh -huh. Or, you know, they, they can do like the awkward, quirky kind of thing. So, um, you know, you might just like give that really good hard joke to somebody else who can actually land a, you know, like a, like a hard joke. But I, it usually depends on um, whether, like if it's like, a really unique specific kind of joke it depends on whether you think the actor can pull it off and if you have a great team and you know then they can pretty much do anything right so. but, you're, but that's interesting so as you're getting into the process of it you're tailoring to the team you have the actor the the production the whole you're starting to see what works what doesn't and that's it that's a fascinating process how long so that last one we were talking about was uh blackish which is uh um how long were you on that show what, what network was that i forget that was on abc i was on that for the first season because i was on that through the abc writers program hmm. um so after on floor i had gotten into the abc writers program and through that i got onto blackish and um i was i was there that whole first season which was very enlightening and very it was it was a lot of fun. It was it was very challenging in some ways, and mostly the political ways more than anything. Um, but yeah, but we you know I mean we had an incredible writers' room. I mean I think the cumulative experience that our writer staff had was like over a hundred years of wow. experience in this field. Like they had they were most of them were EPs or co-EPs. They'd at least been writing for a decade, at least, if not two. Um, we had a pretty large staff, and I think that I was the only, I was one of two staff writers, and one of them left about halfway through the season. But, um, you know, and then, like, after me was the co-producer. So we didn't even have, we didn't even have, like, a story editor or an executive story editor, which are, you know, it goes staff writer, story editor, executive story editor co-producer, producer, supervising producer, co-executive producer, and then executive producer. So that's the hierarchy of it. And most of the our executive whole producer, team was- The executive producer is the showrunner? Is that usually how it is? Well, actually, that's interesting that you ask. Sometimes the executive, the, the showrunner should be producer and usually is. Sometimes, not I, well i'll say that the creator is sometimes not the ep um if you have like a lower level writer who has sold the show um the studio and or network may not want to make that person an ep mm. um for whatever reason it's i think i don't know my I, I think it's silly because they created the whole freaking show you know i mean that's hard enough to do to get on the air um yeah. <laughs> um but yeah you know it's uh the 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 showrunner is is generally an ep and then you you just climb the ranks it it honestly i mean in the best of rooms in the ideal of rooms it's more democratized the staff writers and the story editors and exec story editors don't have as much experience and for the most part, I feel like, especially if you're a staff writer, you 
shouldn't try to contribute as much as an EP will because they have more experience. You know, like if you think about it, like a basketball team, you know, and you're a newbie, um, you're, you're not going to outshine, I was going to say Kobe, but you're not going to outshine LeBron, you know, aren't Um, so, you know, um, they have those, those titles for a reason. And, but, you know, it's still, however long you've been in the industry, it's not necessarily always telling of your talent relative to everyone else in the room. Interesting. So, so, so I guess, which is just to say there are EPs out there and co-EPs that are not that great. And that there are, and there are staff writers that are amazing. And obviously the other way around, right. you know, just like in the human world where we don't, we don't go into, you know, there are CEOs and SVPs of companies that are not great. And there are employees that are really good. You know, it, it just varies. Right. Well, first of all, I'm glad that you delineated for us that there is a showbiz world and a human world. This is very important <laughs> for people to understand. There are humans, there are civilians, and then there are the people that do this stuff. So, I, all right. So my question, one of my next questions is, um, with all this in, intense work, we're going to get into stuff you're maybe doing now as we get close to wrapping up. I want to do that. But I want to talk about, do you feel while you're doing this and you're dealing with the politics and you're dealing with uh, just the hierarchies and, and, and all the, the, the chemical interactions of this stuff, do you feel creative? Are you enjoying the work? Like, do you feel like, yeah, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. Um, not always. No, it was. I think I, I, I kind of had like an existential crisis, and I think um, Kate was telling me that I was having one actually. I'm not surprised. I got into this. Yeah, I know. He was right too. But like, I, I feel like I had gotten to this place where I'd worked so hard towards, and then I'm in this space. Like, I'm, I'm. I'm here. I'm, I'm in the dream. I'm on cloud nine, you know, like it's amazing. And because of egos, because of politics, because of things that I had no awareness of before, um, and didn't really know how, how to manage then. Um, I, I was like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not enjoying this. And what, like, it was such a weird thing where you're just like, like I'm like this is gonna be the best sandwich I've ever had in my life, and then you eat it, and you're like, this tastes like shit, <laughs> you know? And you're like, why is this happening? And is it me? You know, the first thing I get to is just like, is it me? And then, you know, on a on a couple of the shows, I would I know it I know it wasn't just me, and you know, I was kind of in the trenches with other writers, and we were just kind of get trying to get through it because it was either really poorly managed or there were just egos in the room that were bigger than the show itself and were very destructive. Um, but I will say there were, I mean, points where I was just like, I think, am I wrong? Like, did I, this is what I wanted, right? Like, this is what I wanted to do. And then I'll go off and write my own thing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, this is what I wanted to do because I love this. Like, I love writing and I love this. But then, you know, you go back into like the, the 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 politics and i feel like unfortunately i've been in rooms where there have been a certain level of management issues where 
either the, you know, some of the people at the top or one of the people, you know, people at the top were, were just not able to handle their own ego, whether it was like an inflated ego or a deflated ego. And coming from like a corporate finance environment and even from stand-up comedy, oddly enough, I didn't, I didn't know how to deal with that because stand-up comics will just go out and tell you what they're, you know, they'll just be like, you know, you're like fucking stepping on my toes, bitch. Like, what the, you know, like, they'll be like, get all like step off. But, you know, in, in this environment, there's so much that's unsaid and you only understand what happened like a month later. Right. So there's this, you know, and you're like, the, Oh, that's why he was mad. That right. one. There's this sort of passive aggressive, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm not going to tell you, but you're going to feel it one way or the other vibe. So, so the only way you put down that shit sandwich, right. Is, you get back, you get back into your own stuff. So let's talk about that. What, what was, what are the kind of things you you were writing for yourself? And then, and then obviously, I guess you're, you're pitching that and you're selling that. What are the things that, that, that helped you put that, uh, the shit sandwich down and, and have yourself a nice meal for yourself? Um, I, 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 no, no more sandwiches um, completely, <laughs> but um, I, sold a pilot and um that was that was kind of good it was it had like an indian point of view to it and at, at least like it was a few years ago and even then i mean that that wasn't that long ago but even then like i was being pitched these like really stereotypical things to to change in in my pilot um and i was like i can't like i can't do this like i'm not putting fucking bollywood in my pilot um but um the stuff that I'm writing now, I think is a little bit more authentic to what I've always wanted to write. And the way that I used to perform stand-up, which is just like, you know, kind of a no holds barred. Cause the shows that I've been on were largely either on broadcast TV, which, you know, doesn't really always get into like the rawness that you can get from cable or streaming. And, um, so I've always, so the projects that I'm working on now that I've sold so far are ones that I can kind of go into the murkiness and the darkness. Right. And um, I, I, I've, I also sold a drama. So I'm working on both comedy and drama genres. Um, and, and the drama is like this really dark uh, family drama that has kind of like Shakespearean edges to oh, it. Awesome. You know, all the manipulative, deceit the lies the, oh, all that excellent yeah yeah well i i knew once we put you on here that the darkness would eventually come out you know the, yeah. the dark edges <laughs> and the swords and the blades would come out um all right that's very cool so first two things one uh the pilot that you you did uh was it bad indians do i have that right oh that was different no that's funny that was something that i did with a friend and we wrote these like we were just gonna make web like like a web series and um we wrote up these episodes and we were just like why don't we just shoot it and see what happens right. and so yes that's what i was an actor in and okay. me and me we both starred in it and we had a lot of fun um making it oh, and, so so um, two so two things i'm gonna jump in here so one for that did your family 
see that and what did what did they think the, the people who were who were who were worried about you coming back in six months when they finally saw some of this kind of stuff with that culture infused into it what what were the reactions well um i i didn't actually show it to my parents there's there's at least <laughs> there's at least one dick joke in there exactly. um at least one um i think there's and, one and in the trailer i know <laughs> Well, you know, I showed it to like my my sisters and my and my and my cousins just to see what they thought of it. But um, I think when I sold the other pilot that I sold a few years ago is called Make Vivia Great Again, and um, and that was actually originally written as a half hour, a very like cable, you know, stre uh, streaming kind of dark half hour, and it was bought by the CW as an hour long. So I had to completely rewrite the script as an hour long. Hmm. Um, so I'm taking that back out right now as a half hour because it's never gone out there as a half hour. Um, but that one has, um, that one comes from like an Indian point of view as well. And I think it's it's funny when you mentioned my, my parents in there, it's like, I, I think, they would appreciate and be proud of a show that I did. And I'm, I'm saying this very carefully, as you can tell, that I did that came from the Indian point of view. However, if it was from my very like dark, cursy, swearwardy point of view, I think there's an amendment to that. I think they'd be like, well, if only there wasn't a sex scene in there. But I'm like, well, what are you going to do? So we can't repressed um <laughs> we all have to make compromises but, mom and dad are gonna have to make compromises because we need we need the sex scene in there so let's just do it yeah. <laughs> all right so, yeah. so last couple of questions uh i want to touch on because I, I i saw somewhere that you teach as well but we'll get into that in a second but the one process that i think you can uh enlighten me on uh, and a lot of the folks out there is you're a writer you're out in los angeles you're out there pitching and selling these shows to networks, to cable, to whatever outlets are picking them up. What's the pitch process like? How do you get the show sold? How, you know, a lot of us don't see behind that curtain. So it, you just give us a little kind of brief primer on getting your script, going to a pitch, pitching it, and the reaction when you go, oh, they think they're going to buy it, that kind of a thing. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so generally for me, the pitch process has been that I... I go and pitch my pitch to production companies and um, you know, you get connected with the one that understands your vision for the show and likes it. And, you know, there's a mutual compatibility there. And then um, they, you know, if they're super excited and passionate about it, like they have to be super excited and passionate about it, you know, and that is very important because there might be points in which your, your excitement is, and passion kind of starts waning because you're like, well, no one's going to buy it, you know? So you need producers who are really, who really understand the vision of what you're trying to say. Um, and then you, uh, generally the production companies, the, the producers might have notes on your pitch. So then you, you know, amend the pitch and revise it a little bit per notes and, you know, try to make it a little deeper. And then you pitch it to studio and you go around pitching it to, to studios until, you know, hopefully one of them buys your pitch or there's a bidding war or something 
something like that. And whoever wins out again will have notes on your pitch. Let, so you'll get even more notes on the pitch. Let me stop you. And um, yeah. Pitching in person? Oh, is that well, part of I, the deal? Um, I mean, I have pitched both in person and I, you know, have also pitched on Zoom because of, you know, everything this year. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I don't think that we need the human to human pitch <laughs> because it's, it's, it's a lot easier to not have to memorize your pitch and just be able to read, read it off the screen. Because, you know, for one thing, your audience doesn't like get bored when you forget something and you don't have that weird, like, oh shit, I forgot something. Like, what did I, did I not say this? You know what I mean? Um, it just, I think there's a lot more confidence in it. I think in the room, there's at least there's nothing but you in the room and like your executive's kids aren't going to run in or your, or their dog or whatever, you know? Um, so there's at least that, but, and you know, I, I do think that like seeing someone in person is obviously very different than seeing them through zoom. So, um, in-person pitches are probably better, but I, I'm not going to say that I miss them. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, clearly I would rather have you sitting right in the room here. That would be a lot, <laughs> a lot nicer and probably better for both of us. So, uh, but we're, we're working our way through this the best we can. And I think it's, uh, I think, I think it's coming off pretty good so far. So, um, so the other thing is, uh, do you teach? I thought, I think I saw something where you, you teach writing. What's that about? Yeah. Well, um, the, there's this, uh, school, the writing pad contacted me several years ago, um, when I was in the ABC program and they wanted, they just wanted me to teach a class on how to get into like the fellowships and stuff. And, um, the, I, you know, I guess I did a good job. The students liked me and they gave me a few more classes and then that just kind of like kept going. And I, I found it to be a nice like way to still keep my gears moving, even it not have to be in like a heavily politicized environment. Like if, like, if I was, you know, on staff, or something like that. And it was like a kind of difficult room. It would be nice to just like work on somebody else's material and help somebody else with that. So right. yeah, yeah. I've, I taught a few classes this year. Um, uh, I'm probably going to start again. Is there, next a, year. is there a satisfaction, a different kind of satisfaction that you get from seeing uh, a student working on something and, and coming and getting to it, getting it that you don't get from creating on your side? I think they're two very different things. It's just like teaching Amanda fish kind of a thing. You know what I mean? And, and, and kind of like creating the fish and creating the lakes and the, you know, and the whole thing. Um, so it's, it's a very different, it's a very different satisfaction of, of helping other people achieve their dream or achieve what they're trying to say on the page as well. Um, but I think, I, I mean, I love, I love writing like that. That's it. Like I, you know, teaching is, is something that I love doing for other people, but I really love writing, creating that will never stop. All right. So I think we're, we'll wrap it up here. And I guess my last thing for you is you've survived the existential crisis, you know, uh, 
and you uh, you got out of finance, luckily, successfully, and, and escaped, battled through New York, got out to Los Angeles, you know, uh, and love of writing is still there. How are you now? How is, when you look and, and look around at your life and where you're at, what's the dream still to come? And, and how do you feel about where you're at right now? Those two things. Um, I, yeah, there's definitely, Definitely a lot more dreams still to come. You know, I I want to I I want to be running shows. I want my own shows on the air. I want to um, shoot a feature soon. You know, I'm working on one that I'm almost done with. Um, I want to get my material out there. That's like for me. Um, you know, because I feel like like the notorious B.I.G. said, I have a story to tell. And, you know, coming from New York, I can't, you, you can take a girl out of Brooklyn, but you can't. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, I think I have a lot of stories to tell and I have a very specific point of view and I have something to say that's not out there yet. And I would love to be able to run shows and, you know, give people chances and run a functional room, you know, like a really, like a good room. Um, and I think where, from where I'm at right now, you know, I'm, I, I think sometimes I'm in awe that like, you know, especially being, I'm in my, my parents' house right, right now through, um, COVID, but like just being like this little kid that really wanted to do this and then seeing myself that has actually done it, it's, it's pretty fucking amazing. <laughs> pretty fucking amazing. It's, 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 it's pretty great. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's really fucking amazing. It's, it's it's particularly fucking amazing to watch somebody do it and uh, and see them get there and, and and have the courage to step out and uh, and and not think about what might go wrong or might not just do it and just know that it's always the right thing to do. Um, I think you're fantastic. I think you're lovely. I'm glad Kate sent you my way and uh, and uh, I look forward to all the great stuff that we're going to see coming out from you. If anything I can ever do to help you, you just shoot a note my way and I'll, I'll be happy to, to jump in and, and, and help whatever I can do. But I thank you for coming on here today and uh, I learned a lot about uh, the the whole behind pulling the curtain back on the writer's room and, and what it's like to, to do what you do. And uh, uh, I have the utmost respect for writers and especially comic writers. So I, I'm, I'm very impressed. I thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. I'm so glad Kate connected us. This was amazing. I was like, how am I going to top her, her nude model story? Like there's, I didn't do that. Do I have to become a nude model now? <laughs> Look, you followed Chappelle. You can follow Kate Van Devener, so. <laughs> that's true. I'm putting that on my, yeah, on my right, resume. Right. Well, thank you so <laughs> thank much. You I so really, really appreciate it. And, uh, and I'll, you'll probably come out in the next couple of weeks. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a, uh, an email with a thing and everything. So thanks a lot. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Russ. This was a pleasure. It was a pleasure talking to you.